From the first chapter of Matthew, here begins the reading. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife For the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. And he named him Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Besides spending time with my grandchildren, Finley and Miles, one of the things I truly love is diving into a great story. Great stories withstand the test of time. Never mind that we know how the story ends, we seek out those great stories again and again so that we can savor the details, the development of unforgettable characters, the twists and turns of the plot, an unforgettable scene, a memorable dialogue that later becomes part of our culture. So at the risk of hijacking my sermon this morning, I'll give you an example of a story whose details I love to savor that was made into a movie. Let me just say something about hijacking sermons. When I was studying preaching with Joey Jeter, he warned us that sometimes particular sermon illustrations take on a life of their own. They capture the imagination of the person sitting in the pew, and that person is gone. They won't hear another word of that particular sermon. So, at the risk of setting that in motion this morning, let me tell you that one of the stories I really love was set into a movie by Steven Spielberg, but first appeared by Peter Benchley in a novel titled Jaws. The movie won an Academy Award for Best Original Score by John Williams. And you cannot think of that movie without hearing the music in your mind. 
has been, this has been added since the nine o'clock service. This. <laughs> Such a sinister opening music, really. Do you remember when you saw that movie for the first time? So I've got this movie memorized now, every piece of it. But if I am channel surfing in the evening and I come across Jaws on a particular channel and it's at one particular place, I got to stay with it until the end of the movie. And the place is when the police chief, the oceanographer, and the crazy old fisherman climb onto the boat and head out to the open sea. And the music swells at that point. You have this great optimism for what they're doing. You're cheering the heroes on. You're compelled by the beautiful score that John Williams has created. And that very positive, uplifting mu music continues long into all the complications that begin to turn the story around. Next time you watch, notice how hopeful the music stays for a long, long time as setbacks occur and bad decisions are made. And finally, we get the sense that it's the shark pursuing the humans. And what's that great line from the police chief when he gets his first up-close look at the shark? <laughs> I think we're going to need a bigger boat. This is a very interactive sermon, don't you think? <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen next? Probably not even me. It is a great story. And so it doesn't matter that we know the ending. Now, we gather these Sundays in December to rehearse the details of another story that is timeless. All of the details it's like we're in, in a museum again and again and again, an art lover standing in front of that particular masterpiece, soaking it in. That's the way that we feel about this story. We eagerly, eagerly search through the Gospels of Luke and Matthew for every single detail that brings this story to life, that leads us through the narrative to a starry night in Bethlehem. I confess that every Advent, I long for more details about Joseph. Matthew's purpose in chapters 1 and 2 is very particular to set to rest the identity of Jesus. He is writing near the end of the first century, and the church is still plagued with doubt and questions. Matthew wants to set all that to rest, so he begins with a very curious genealogy. And then in short order, he establishes that Jesus descended from Abraham and David, that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the king of the Jews, that Jesus is the hope of the nations. Matthew puts all that to rest. He's good at credentials, but I want details. I want to know how Joseph found out that Mary was expecting. I imagine it broke his heart to hear that news. Matthew wants his readers to know that Joseph was a righteous man. Being betrothed was very formal and binding at this time. The parents of the bride at the time of the engagement paid to the groom a bride price. If the groom decides later on to call off the marriage, that his faithful course of action will be to make 
a public explanation of why the bride has been unfaithful. Joseph didn't want that for Mary. If he dismisses her quietly, he can return the money to Mary's parents. He can spare her the public forum, but her life will be changed forever. So Joseph makes a decision he can live with. I want to know how Mary found out about Joseph's decision. I want to know how many nights Joseph tossed and turned before the night when he had the dream. Am I the only person who wonders why God waits so long to fill in the details for Joseph? Mary gets advance notice. Joseph goes through a terrible situation, navigating all on his own before he hears what God's plan for him is. You realize, of course, that Joseph also retains the right to say no, to ignore that dream. God grants all of us the right to not participate in what God is doing in the world. We can say no to small assignments. We can say no to big plans for God's kingdom here on earth. God gives us the space and the time to question and doubt and convince ourselves that somebody else would be better for that job. This whole storyline where Joseph is concerned, I think, is very messy and painful, and at times it is unfair. But you don't have to read very far in the Hebrew scriptures to see what happens to prophets who say yes to God's call on their lives. I don't think we blame Joseph. He takes a little time to make up his mind. So in the absence of details from Matthew, here's what I believe happened the morning after the dream. I believe Joseph sets out at daybreak and runs to Mary's house. I believe the dream has healed Joseph's broken heart and given his life a holy purpose he never imagined for himself. He has been commissioned by God to name this baby, and that's a task that fathers have. And God has given to Joseph the name for the child. God is with us, Emmanuel. Joseph's life is changed forever by that dream and by his willingness to participate in what God is doing in the world. It is so important for us to resist the temptation to rush headlong to the end of this story, to that night in Bethlehem, because this is a story that invites us in. One of the talented writers of a group called Sanctified Art has a wonderful description for the Christmas story. Listen to what she says. The Christmas story of love that came here and walked among us is a story that continues to change us. It reframes the way that we hope. It centers the way that we love. It shapes the way that we live. That's why every year, this timeless story intersects 
in important ways with what is going on in our own lives and what is going on in the world around us and the Holy Spirit at work through all of that intersecting allows us to celebrate fresh new details, gives us a holy perspective that we hadn't had before as long as we stay here in the story as it moves forward. Talented storyteller Anne Weems, she agrees with me that Joseph needs more time in the spotlight. She says even the way we decorate for Christmas doesn't give Joseph the respect he deserves. And so I want you to hear what she writes, how she fills in the blanks that we don't have from Matthew's gospel. She writes, who put Joseph in the back of the stable? Who dressed him in brown, gave him a staff, told him to stand out of the way and make room for the magnificent Madonna? This man Joseph, God chosen, was faithful in spite of the gossip in Nazareth, in spite of the danger from Herod, Joseph listened to angels. And it was he who named the child Emmanuel. Is this a man to be stuck for centuries in the back of the stable? Actually, Joseph probably stood in the doorway, guarding the mother, guarding the baby, greeting the visitors. And when he wasn't in the doorway, he was probably urging Mary to get some rest, covering her gently with his cloak, promising her that he would watch the baby. He probably picked the child up in his arms and walked with the baby out into the night, patting him lovingly until the baby closed his eyes. So this Christmas, let's give thanks to God for this man of incredible faith into whose care God placed this precious child. And as a gesture of gratitude, let's put Joseph in the front of the stable where he can guard and he can greet and he can cast an occasional glance at the one who gives us life. Amen. Amen.